Well, praise the Lord. That'll get you going, right? The Lord is good, is He not? Let's praise Him this morning. What a gracious and loving and merciful God He is. And we worship Him this morning. That's why we're here. We're here not for us. We're here not to feel better. We're here not to see people. We're here to worship the Lord. And He is the only one this morning that deserves any praise and any glory in our lives. And that song really gets to the point. It centers on the praise and honor that He gets as ruler of all things, but also the one who shows us His mercy. You know, we usually talk about blessing as coming from the Lord to us. Like the Lord really blessed me or the Lord is blessing the church. But a number of times in the Bible, it uses the phrase, blessed be the Lord or bless the Lord. It's a great phrase. It's the essence of worship. It literally means to kneel down before him and to adore. Only the Lord this morning is worthy of any worship. Only the Lord this morning has any claim to be praised and trusted as God. And that's really the heart of the spiritual battle that has been taking place since the Garden of Eden. The enemy who rebelled against God when he was an angel and who thought he could be God and thought he could uh, have a coup d'etat in heaven and could take over and could be God when he knew he was wrong and when he knew he was banished out of heaven he immediately went after the man that God created. And he came with the same lie, that God is not worthy, that you don't need him, that you can be your own God. That's the underlying deception that's the core of every religion that man has created, that we can ultimately earn our way into heaven, and that either by just simply being or by doing just the right things, that we're somehow worthy of salvation, that we're somehow worthy of acceptance by God. Now, man is fully indoctrinated into this. Mankind has bought into this lie uh, completely. The idea of self-worth, it's ingrained into our sinful nature. It's ingrained into how we think, and it's reinforced by culture to the extent that the thought of being accountable to God or the thought of living by faith or the, the thought of being yielded to his word is now seen as an indication of naivete and and weakness. We saw a clear example of that this week. I don't know if you saw this news, the the disinvitation of Pastor Louis Giglio to the inauguration. He was going to give the final prayer. And when it was discovered by somebody that went after him that 20 years ago he preached a biblical defense of, of the theology of homosexuality, they decided that he shouldn't be allowed to be there. So now the authority of Scripture is being officially denied by the government. Sin can't be called sin because somebody might be offended by that. And essentially, biblical Christianity is now seen as as untenable and unacceptable in our culture. So we can only imagine where this is headed over the next four years. Now, as disturbing as that is, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Because the enemy is still following the same playbook, and he's pressing even harder now to advance his message that God is unworthy and that man is God. So I loved what the Lord did this week, just as a kind of in-your-face to our government. He decided to display something that was miraculous. I want to show you the picture. Can you guys put up that first picture? Astronomers this week discovered this quasar 
It's now the largest known structure in the universe, but it's a huge problem for scientists and for astronomers because it challenges every theory they've ever had about the scale of the universe. It completely contradicts everything that they've learned and, and assumed and concluded about how big the universe is. To give you some perspective on how big this quasar is, the Milky Way galaxy that we live in is about 100,000 light years wide. The next galaxy over, Andromeda, is about 2.5 million light years away, okay? Milky Way is 100,000 light years wide. Andromeda is 2.5 million light years away. This quasar is 4 billion light years wide. Now, that's a problem because science has concluded that anything larger than 1.2 million light years can exist. So they're not sure what to do now. Because this quasar is 4 billion light years wide. And it brings to mind Psalm 8, where David says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. In other words, the thought that we could be God or that we could challenge God, or that we could be worthy of his mercy, is beyond laughable. And yet that's the great deception that man is bought into. Now, in our text of the morning, Luke chapter 7, if you have a Bible, if you haven't already turned there, let's turn to that. In Luke chapter 7, we see a man who understood who God was. And it's a very unexpected source of someone that would understand who God is. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has just explained to the people a fresh way of thinking about faith. For so long, they had been under the influence of the self-centered, self-righteous hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and their outward obedience to the law that had absolutely no heart to it. It was just ritualistic and formal and unfelt. So that's what they had been exposed to. They had, had unknowingly heard the Pharisees take the law and twist it and change it for their own devices and for their own bias. Most people couldn't read, so they didn't understand that's what was going on. So they bought into the lies. So this is the culture that took place. Israel had rebelled against the Lord. We know that from past studies. God had been silent. Jesus comes. So now Jesus starts to talk about something that sounds profoundly different. He starts to talk about loving the Lord and loving others and trusting God in all things and, and bearing fruit, building on the strong foundation of faith and, and bearing fruit in the way that we live and, and being kind and gracious and loving to other people and seeking the things of God. And the people didn't reject it. In fact, it says in Matthew that after he got done the Sermon on the Mount that they were astonished because he taught as someone who had authority from heaven. And then it tags on the last phrase. I love what Matthew writes. He goes, not like the scribes. In other words, when they heard Jesus talk, they said, this is different. Something radically dramatic is happening. Heaven is speaking to us. This is not like the stuff we've been hearing from our leaders. This is from the Lord. Now, the reason mankind had failed so miserably was personified by the Jews 
all throughout the Old Testament. They had rejected God's law and they had lived for themselves. And now Jesus is challenging that. He's talking about humility and sacrifice and love and rejecting self and and rejecting self-righteousness and trusting in the Lord. Now, there's no way of knowing how much that's settled in the people's hearts at this point. But it is interesting that the first two events that take place after the Sermon on the Mount is that he heals a leper in Matthew chapter 8. And and a a leper was interesting because it was a dramatic example of him cleansing someone that humanity couldn't heal. There was no solution for leprosy. They were colonized by themselves. They had to call out whenever they came near anybody. There, There was no answer that man had for the condition of a leper. So for Jesus to to finish the Sermon on the Mount, the first person he heals is a leper. What was not accidental. He was making a statement about the power and sufficiency of God. And the second incident is this one with the centurion. And this is here in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read 10 verses this morning. Let's start in verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, that's speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man, also a man, placed under authority, with servants, soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus, verse 9, heard this, he marveled at him. And turned and said to the crowd that was following, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus went to the town of Capernaum. We have some pictures of that this morning. Capernaum was at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. The first picture will kind of give you a sense of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. It's kind of mountainous and... and, um, kind of hilly, but it's very small. It's very natural. Let me just give you a sense of of perspective here. The town of Capernaum is somewhere in this area uh, at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. If you could run to the next slide, please. Uh, This is the approach to Capernaum. Uh, Now there's nothing there. It's just ruins. It's a very um, well-visited site by tourists in Israel uh, because you can see some of the ruins and get a sense of the perspective. This was a town where Jesus and the disciples spent a lot of time. So this is the approach on the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum. If you go to the next slide, please. And this just gives you, again, a sense of the area. So you can see how uh, you can see across here. So if there would have been somebody walking around with hundreds or thousands of people following them, if you're over here, you could have seen that. And again, because of the way that the Sea of Galilee is constructed, um, it's kind of in a bowl It's a natural amphitheater, so you can stand hundreds and hundreds of yards up on the hill and hear somebody talking down by the water just as I'm talking to you. It's that clear. 
So I want you to get a sense of perspective. Jesus and the disciples are in Capernaum. Capernaum was uh, the home for five of the disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Matthew. So this was a place where they regularly stayed. Whenever they were in the area, they usually went to Capernaum because a lot of them had houses there, and this was a very comfortable place for them. The town was very small, about 1,200 people, so very tiny little fishing village. And in the fishing village, there was a Roman centurion. Now, a Roman centurion was somebody who oversaw 100 soldiers. And the text tells us the problem that the centurion had. He had a slave that was very sick. And what makes this centurion very unique is that the text says he genuinely cared about the slave. Now, centurions were especially known for their harshness and for their command and for their uh, kind of just bearing that, that they didn't take anything from anybody. They were over 100 soldiers. They were well-respected. They were very strong and, and would be brutal if the case uh, required that. So, so this was a man who would have been known as somebody that was very stern. In the Roman culture, slaves had very little rights. In fact, they were seen as property by their owners. They could be bought and sold and borrowed at the owner's discretion. They could be beaten and branded and, and whipped and whatever the case may be. And Roman law allowed that owners could kill the slave for any reason and not have any punishment. So you've got to think that the slave of a centurion has got to have not a very good life because he's got to really be under the control and command of this kind of stern, harsh soldier that commands a 100 soldiers. And because he doesn't have any rights, you can expect that the relationship would be at very best uh, kind of indifferent and at very worst, it would be cruel and harsh. But the text says something different. It says that this centurion highly regarded the slave. The word there is very interesting. It means that he was precious to him, that he held him in great and high honor. Now, every detail of Scripture is important. We know that, right? Everybody say yes. Every detail of Scripture is important. So the fact that the Holy Spirit includes that detail he wants us to pay attention to it because he's saying there's something about this man that's different. He's caring. His character is such that he would take an interest in the slave, that he would be involved with his life, that he wasn't just some incidental servant that he could just whack across the face and beat and say, you serve me. In fact, he even quotes and says, when I want the slave to do something, I say do it, and the slave doesn't. But this slave was different. And it says the centurion cared about him and that he loved him and that he had a genuine interest in his life. I tried to picture it this week. I, I can almost picture him kind of pacing around the room as the servant is laying there and, and he's gasping and he's about to die because that's what Luke tells us. And Luke was a doctor. So, so uh, uh, and the centurion, he's not off doing whatever he's going to do. He's there in the room and he's pacing. And then all of a sudden he hears about Jesus and he says, all right, I'm going to formulate a plan. Let's get some Jewish elders. And they'll go because they'll probably be better heard by Jesus than a Roman centurion. So send for them right away. Come on, go appeal to Jesus. Tell him I need him to come and heal my servant and save his life. Now the Jewish leaders were happy to appeal on his behalf because they also liked him. 
And this wasn't just out of, out of fear or, or some kind of strategy that if we're kind to him, maybe he'll be kind to us. That wasn't the point. Instead, they knew him to be a man of character. So the text says they earnestly implore him to go. Uh, they earnestly implore Jesus. And they say, notice the text. Now look at it. They say, this centurion is worthy of your help. They say that because he loved Israel and because he had helped them build their synagogue. If you could show the next slide just for a second. This is uh, ruins of the fourth century synagogue that was built on the ruins of the first century synagogue. So we actually don't have the actual ruins of when Jesus walked to the synagogue in Capernaum. But this will give you perspective. This is what it looked like. So this was built in the fourth century. And it's very similar to what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. Obviously, the building's not complete. But, but try to imagine this, this sense that the centurion had helped the people of Capernaum, a village of 1,200, little fishing village. There aren't artisans and craftsmen and stoneworkers there. It's just a bunch of fishermen like Peter. And he helped them build it. Now, now that notice in the text, because I read it wrong the first two times, it doesn't say he helped us to build it. It says that he built it. And that would have been an unusual action. Why would a Roman centurion, why would a, a ruler over the soldiers of that area possibly take an interest in the Jewish religion enough to help them build it? Did he raise the money? Did he uh, get a group of soldiers to, to put the stones together? Did he arrange for some craftsmen to come from another town and build this? What, what was the deal here? Whatever the case was, he apparently helped finance it. He apparently helped build it. He made it happen because they couldn't make it happen. He had a very vested interest in the project, and the people loved him for that. Whenever they walked by the synagogue, they say, oh, that centurion, what a great guy. He helped us build that. He is, he is somebody we're grateful for. So when they go to Jesus, they say, Lord, he is worthy now. This, this man is worthy of your help. This is the selling point. Jesus is still kind of unknown to them, even though he's become very popular. Word is spread about him. He's doing miracles. Matthew tells us that word had gotten all the way to Syria about what was going on with Jesus. But to them, he's still a little bit of an unknown. They don't know how he feels about the Romans. They don't know if he's here to lead a revolt against the Romans. You remember that the people, as he's coming into the city at the triumphal entry, they're disappointed that he doesn't then lift a sword and say, we're going to take these crummy Romans out of here. So there was a sense of, of kind of wonder, is this, is this our military guy? Is this the guy that's going to, going to prove his value and then take on Rome? They have no idea what he's about. So they appeal to him on national pride. Oh, oh, Jesus, he loves our nation. And he's helped us. He, he built the synagogue. He is, he is worthy. What a, what a man this guy is. He's so sacrificial and kind and, and helpful. And he's, he's not hostile to the Jewish nation. But I want you to see, even they don't quite see the essence of his character because they just talk about what he did for them. They don't really see who he is. Jesus, it says in verse 6, decides to go with them. It says, so Jesus started on his way to Capernaum, to the, to the centurion's house. But we need to understand that what they say, look back at it for a second, in verses 4 and 5, are not the reason that Jesus went. The centurion must have been a great guy, well-respected, well-loved, 
But his worthiness in man's expectation is not the reason why Jesus goes to the house. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? Tell me. The heart. Jesus doesn't go because, oh, he's a great guy, and he loves Israel, and he built the synagogue. Well, I'm there, of course. What credentials? What a resume. He really is worthy. Let's go. I'm right. That's not why he's going. In fact, the centurion himself, verse 7 says, didn't see himself as worthy. He didn't think that, that, that Jesus should come near. He didn't think that, that it was, he was good enough or, or worthy enough to go to Jesus himself. He sent other people as intermediaries. And that's not a ploy. He's not sending them as an angle so, so that he'll get his way. He honestly doesn't view himself as worthy of God's help. And his statement's powerful because look at it. He says, you have authority over everything. doesn't say, look, I'm a centurion and we Romans rule Israel and I don't care who you are or what you teach or what you do. I'm a centurion. Get over here to my house and help me. I command you to do it and if you don't, I'll have you arrested. If anything, his understanding of power and authority is what causes him to ask Jesus not to come near. This man knew authority. And since Jesus isn't a ruler of anybody, he's not a leader of anybody, he doesn't have a crew, he doesn't have a posse, he doesn't have people, he's just a guy walking around with 12 disciples who don't really, at this point, know their left foot from their right foot. People are following, he's healing them, he's teaching them, word spreading. But, but at this point, Jesus is not leading a group of people like this centurion does. So the only thing we can understand from the text about his understanding of Jesus' power and authority is not that it was over people. It's that it was over creation and health and sickness and death and life. He understands who Jesus is before the nation even does. The people are, oh, Jesus, oh, save us and help us and and heal us and and teach us more. And and it's kind of still all about them. But, But people really didn't yet get who he was. But the centurion does. And what's fascinating, look at the text, is he had everything going against his faith. He was a Roman. Romans worshiped false gods. They saw the emperors as forms of gods. He was a powerful man. He led a hundred men. He was in charge of Galilee for the Romans. And there was going to be a lot of controversy there the next three years. And he was a, a man who was used to being in control. He was a soldier. He was strong. He was powerful. People feared him. They were intimidated by him. He was very self-sufficient. But I want you to keep coming back to that phrase that's in verse 7. I don't consider myself worthy. Despite his power, despite his position, despite his popularity, somehow faith had been birthed in his heart and he had the right perspective of who he was in relationship to God. And he trusted in Jesus. Jesus even affirms that. I've never seen faith like this even in Israel. What a little dig at the Jews. Never seen faith like this. I'm amazed. I'm astonished by this man that he trusts God, 
the way he does. I don't know what had caused his heart to be softened toward the Lord or what had caused him to trust in God. It was a contradiction to everything he was and he stood for. But whatever it was, as it was birthed and formulated in his heart, when his servant gets sick, all of a sudden he says, I've got to move toward the Lord. And he doesn't do it arrogantly or or with with great fervor or, or with great entitlement. He says, I need somebody else to intervene. I need help. What a great principle that is. That's what we're going to do tonight at prayer meeting. We're going to intervene for each other. Never be too proud to say, I need somebody to pray for me. I, I, wish, I wish somebody would come alongside me and we sit and we suffer in silence and we say, oh, somebody just pray for me. We never ask. After every service, there are people up here from the prayer band ready to pray with you. If you have a need, you come up and they will pray with you. You come tonight to prayer meeting. You have a need, somebody will pray with you. That's what we do. We intervene for each other. And that's what he asked the Jews to do. He says, please, I need help. When difficulty happens like this in your life, maybe it's happening right now. Is the response, is, is the immediate reaction to become bitter and resistance Resistant and, and to say, God, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this in my life? Or do you see that trial as an opportunity to be broken before the Lord and to say, God, I've got to move more toward your love and your mercy. I've got to call in your name. I don't understand this and I am hurting, but I am going to move toward you. See, in doing that, Listen now carefully. We become content in our unworthiness. We say, Lord, only you, the one who formed that quasar that was just discovered this week in response to what our nation is trying to do. That was not an accident, guys. That was the Lord saying, you want to challenge me? Let me show you who I am. Four billion light years wide. And guess what? I got more you don't even know about. You, you want to exalt yourself as God? Here, let me show you who's God. And as we become content in our unworthiness and say, Lord, I'm aware of my unworthiness. And because I'm aware of my unworthiness, it makes me more aware of your worthiness and more grateful for what you have done in my life. Listen, there is great value In knowing that you're unworthy. Spiritually, you and I are unworthy of God. Personally, you and I are unworthy of any love. Relationally, you and I are unworthy of each other. But God gives us worth. Last week, we talked about the plans that God has for us that are too wonderful for us to understand. And we're humbled that he would love us and care for us to even think about us, let alone to redeem us and call us his children. The human heart's proud and it's selfish. And it's easy for us to feel entitled to those plans. Yep, that's right. You love me. You care about me. Bring it on. We don't say that out loud. But our heart thinks that. How do we know? It's shown in impatience and selfishness and a critical spirit and a reticence to serve. And a lack of deep, confident faith. That's, that's what we're saying. Yep, 
I deserve it. I want what I want. Or we take it for granted. That's shown by indifference and lack of worship and lack of prayer and joylessness and no gratitude and no urgency to tell other people. They just We just kind of exist. That's why the Lord says, I'm going to give you a trial. I'm going to stretch your faith. I want to remind you gently now that you're unworthy. But I also at the same time want to remind you that I am powerful and I'm the authority and I want you to be grateful for what I have done because I have changed your life. Without that difficulty or, or, or even worse, by maintaining the wrong attitude in that difficulty, we lose our sense of the greatness of God and we start to become self-focused and we fail to see the reality of our inadequacy. Knowing that you and I are unworthy of anything the Lord does. Listen now, that's of great value. And the moment we forget that, we are in great danger. So what does it mean to see ourselves as unworthy? Let me give you a couple thoughts here. Maybe you want to write something down. You're listening very, very well. What does it mean to see ourselves as unworthy? Well, let's, let's describe what it isn't. Seeing yourself as unworthy is not insecurity. Whether we feel justified or not, insecurity, this is going to be a challenge, so Holy Spirit help us now. Whether we feel justified or not, insecurity is ultimately a focus on ourselves. It is saying, I care more about the opinions of others than I do about anything. And when we become preoccupied with pleasing people instead of pleasing the Lord, and that's almost always a subtle trade-off with insecurity. When we become more concerned about pleasing people than pleasing the Lord, we're actually seeing ourselves as worth more than our worth in the Lord. Saying, well, I've got to have, I've got to have approval because if I have approval, then I'll have value. Nope. The opinions of man, how many know this is true, will fluctuate. They will change. People will hurt you. People will help you. People will love you. People will hate you. People will praise you. People will criticize you. It will happen. And often those things happen out of the same person's mouth. So if we're constantly saying, i got to have man's approval, guess what? We're going to be chronically disappointed. But if we say to ourselves, oh, I want the Lord to be pleased with me, do you think we'll ever be disappointed? So it's not insecurity. Second, it's not false humility. False humility is an act to appear something that we're not in order to please or deceive somebody else. So it can't be that. And third, it's not self-loathing. Now, the Bible tells us that we love ourselves, so I'm not sure how it's even possible to hate ourselves, but some people become very unhappy with who they are, and often it's a result of being overwrought or guilty about the shame of sin. There's a difference between hating your sin and hating yourself because of your sin. So let's clarify something this morning. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. Let's admit this morning that every single one of us is stained by sin, guilty of sin, condemned by sin, and that we all deserve hell. 
It is only by the grace of God that we're delivered by that. And that's what makes his grace so wonderful and so amazing. I hate my sin. I'm completely ashamed that my sin sent Christ to the cross. But I am so grateful that he acted on behalf of you and me to redeem us by faith. And we can be confident that his blood has cleansed us forever and ever and ever. No wonder Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The extent to which we are ashamed of our sin should be directly proportional to how much we are not ashamed to tell people God delivers from sin. If you're broken by your sin, it will make you so much more eager to say to people, you don't have to live that way. Oh, man, I know sin. I've been in sin. God can deliver you from that through Christ. Let me give you one more thought and we'll be done. One other principle that I love so much out of this text is that nothing happens until Jesus approaches. Look at the way the account's written. If the centurion felt so unworthy and and he didn't believe that Jesus should come there and he knew that all Jesus had to do was speak the word and the servant would be healed, why didn't he just ask that at the outset? Because in verse 3 he says, please come and save my servant's life. But once Jesus begins to walk toward the house, and notice the important detail in the text, Holy Spirit always gives this detail, it says that as Jesus came near, he wasn't far away, the house was in sight, he's right there, the door's there, the mourners are standing there, the centurions, other soldiers are there. I mean, Jesus is in what a sight. So as he's walking toward the house, and it's about to happen, the centurion changes the request. No, 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 don't bother yourself. I'm already here. Don't, don't, nope. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Why did he do it this way? Vera asked that about the text. Why, why this way? Why didn't the centurion just say at the outset, look, you're a man of authority. I believe in you. All you have to do is say the word. Instead, he says, come. Jesus comes and he says, don't come. I believe that the Holy Spirit arranged that for three reasons. First of all, because the man's faith here draws a sharp contrast to the religious indifference of the Jews and the doubts and opposition of the Pharisees later. That's why Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. This man's faith drew a contrast. The people are all following Jesus and he's walking and the crowds and the children and the people and the Pharisees and everybody else as Jesus walks through the little village of Capernaum, which now has doubled and tripled in size because of all the crowds that are following and waiting. And now Jesus comes to the house and he stopped. And it's an opportunity for this man's faith to be shown and for Jesus to say, see, this is what it looks like. Second reason, I believe, is it was an opportunity to emphasize the power of God and trust in the man. I was thinking last night as I was finishing of that old hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus say the Lord." You know the chorus, right? Jesus, Jesus, say it with me if you know it. How I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for faith 
to trust Him more. The Word of God and the promises of God are sure. You know how you can trust the Lord? You can trust the Lord because He said it and He's God. You want to know why the Word of God, you want to know why this book is the rule for our life? Because God said it. And because He's God. I don't have to question well, is that good for my life? And should I trust that? And can I believe that? And is the Lord really my shepherd? And did Jesus really? Yeah, he, because Christ, God said this. This is God's word. This is not Rhodes' word or Gamer's word. This is God's word. When God says it, it's true. That's what the centurion believed. Look back at the text one more time. Third, this was an opportunity for Jesus to draw near to him so he could be in awe of the Lord's presence. This is the one that impressed my heart so much this week. Nothing happens until Jesus approaches. There's a spiritual principle there. Nothing happens in prayer. Nothing happens in trials. Nothing happens in our faith until the Lord comes near. This is why prayer is so important. This is why we're going to have a service tonight where the focus is on prayer. However awkward or insecure or whatever you feel about prayer, prayer is important because James 4 says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your heart and humble yourself in the sight of God. But I guarantee you, when you come near to me, I'll come near to you. It's why trials are so important. Psalm 22 says, Lord, don't be far from me because trouble is near. And then later David writes in Psalm 121, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who's the maker of heaven and earth. And he's our keeper and he preserves our going out and our coming in. It's why faith is so important. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God, notice the action. He must come to God and must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Why didn't Jesus just speak the word at the start? Why does he get all the way to the house and come close? I believe it's because nothing happens until the Lord is near. And what's so wonderful about that truth is that God in his infinite mercy and love when he saw us as sinners, didn't stand off at a distance in his righteousness and say, tough luck. Sorry. I warned you. I gave you every opportunity. I gave you my law. I gave you my prophets. I gave you my word. Sorry. I don't care. You blew it. He says, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to take an interest in your life and I'm going to justify you by my mercy. It's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. You remember it? Month after month, waiting, watching, scanning the horizon, not doing his own thing, not off playing golf, not tending to the sheep. saying, my lousy, stinking son wasted my inheritance, ungrateful little jerk. I don't care if he does come back, and if he does come back, I'm going to make him a slave. 
Maybe I'll kill him. Day after day, he sat and he looked at the horizon. And one day, he sees a silhouette and his heart leaps. And he sees that shadow and it starts to come closer and closer. And any father knows his child's walk. He recognizes the walk. And it says in the text that he ran to his son and he hugged him. And the son starts to say, I'm so... And he says, it's forgiven. You're my son. That's what God did for us. We rebelled. We rejected. We squandered. We wasted. We were ungrateful. We had nothing. And God kept looking at the horizon saying, Oh, I want to save you. I want to help you. I want to forgive you. Did you deserve it? Not for a minute. But I'm going to do it because I love you. The Lord acts. Look at it. We're done. The Lord acts when he sees faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. Luke says that Jesus marveled at his faith. The word means that he was in wonder. Can you imagine the Lord being in wonder at our faith? Of looking at Rhodes and saying, I cannot believe how much that guy trusts me. I cannot believe how dependent and how yielded he is. And the word, the secondary meaning is he admires it. I, I admire that in him. Can you imagine the God of the universe that formed a quasar? Four billion light years wide, looking at my scrawny little life and your scrawny little life, no offense, and saying, I cannot believe how much they trust me. I am so pleased. That's why Jesus healed the slave. Not because the centurion had been kind to Israel or had built the synagogue or because he was a good guy. Jesus healed the centurion slave because of the centurion's faith. And notice how, I love it, it really hit me this time, verse 10. Notice how incidental it is. Luke's a doctor. You'd think he'd go on for pages. I don't understand it. This is a medical miracle. This man was sick. He had this kind of disease. He was showing these symptoms, and he was close to death, and then he was restored, and his health now is this. You'd think Luke would go on and on. Luke gives one verse. They went back, and he was fine. Next story. Because the point is not the miracle. The point is not the spectacular. Don't get caught up in that. The point is faith. It always comes back to faith. So he doesn't write for days. Oh, the miracle, the miracle, the miracle, miracle, the, the spectacular, the signs. No, he says, Jesus marveled at the centurion's I asked myself a hard question this week. Does God marvel at my faith? When he looks at my life and when he looks at your life, does he see pride and worldliness and self-justification and a hesitant to trust? Or does he see that we are so awed by the Lord and so humbled in his presence and so fully aware of our complete inadequacy and our complete unworthiness, and yet that our hearts are full of joy and confidence and satisfaction 
in the one who is always faithful. Which is it? Because there is very little middle ground between those two descriptions. Either we see ourselves as worthy and we carry an attitude of kind of entitlement. I'm going to do my own thing. This is about me. Or like the centurion, we say, I'm unworthy. I deserve nothing. But blessed be the Lord who reigns forever. I'm going to lift my voice and I'm going to praise him. I'm going to talk about his mercy and I am going to live for him because he's my savior. Which one is it? Let's close our eyes and go before the Lord just for a moment. Lord, we're going to ask you right now to help us by your Holy Spirit. We pray you would speak to our hearts right now, that you would challenge us and convict us. If you see pride and self-sufficiency, Lord, you're always going to see pride and self-sufficiency in us. But if it's our habit, it's our, our character, I pray you would break us of that this morning. And I pray our hearts would be softened toward you. Lord, destroy what is opposed to you. Destroy what would imagine that we can challenge you or say that we're in control or that we're God or that we're deserving of anything. Lord, just looking at that that structure that you have in the universe that we can't even fathom the scope of it, you formed it with your hands. How dare we? Lord, I pray this morning that you'd move through this room and I pray you would break us of self-sufficiency and that you would remind us, Lord, even though it's a hard thing for us, that we are completely unworthy of your love. And yet, Lord, in the same breath, we say that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we don't know why you would do that, but you do. And we praise you for it. All praise, all honor, all glory goes to you this morning. And Lord, if you need to break us to get that message through to our heads, I pray you would do it. I pray you would move in powerful ways in our lives so that we would love you the way we should and we would trust you the way that we should. Lord, that you would look at our lives and you would look at this church and you would marvel at it that we love and trust you so much. Lord, begin that work, we pray. We thank you and praise you for what you have done in our lives. Lord, we're overwhelmed by it. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.